0: Welcome to Hyperallergic, the podcast. We're bringing playful, serious, and radical perspectives on art and culture in the world today. I'm Harag Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Today we're asking, what or who is art for? Some artists believe it should engage and serve the community. In a little while, we'll see how that looks in the most culturally diverse urban area in the world. No, it's not Brooklyn, but Queens. We start by talking to a pioneer of a type of art called social practice. Tanya Bruguera is from Cuba, and she's been working in the U.S. for years, particularly with immigrant communities.
1: They're my hero. I mean, when you start talking to them, you see everything they went through and everything they're still going through, and they keep going and going, and all the humiliations they have to go through, all the discrimination. It's like... You are like, wow. The other thing that is interesting with immigrants is like, it feels that only the privileged class has the right to be a global citizen or an international citizen. Why not to call those undocumented immigrants global citizens?
0: Bruguera is the first artist-in-residence in the city's Office of Immigrant Affairs. Before that, she created a project that was going on for five years in a storefront on Roosevelt Avenue in Corona, Queens. It's called Immigrant Movement International, and it may not look like what most people think is an art project. Located under the elevated tracks of the 7 train, the space offers classes for undocumented immigrants in things like Smile Therapy, Ecuadorian Dance for Adults, and an Immigrant Superhero Art Workshop. I asked her about the project's mission.
1: The Immigrant Movement as an art project wants to also bring a conversation about useful art, like arte útil, how art can be useful in society, how can we use art for other means and other representation. But also the the goal of Immigrant Movement is to bring a group of people who are part of the society as an active, active, reliable, and also uh, trusted part of the society even no matter what their legal status is. I mean, I think it's a responsibility to give people power and to give people a project. They they, they love and they care and and, uh, they have been recipient of, making them being the the people who generate it.
0: So what makes it an art project then?
1: (laughs) For me, the the process of transformation of people. The way we'll transform the people who are part of it.
0: And so now in terms of what has your experience in Cuba and how has that that informed the work you're doing now because I mean you do socially engaged work but it's different when you're doing that work without sort of like literally a government that seems to be like creating not only challenges but real major obstacles for what for what you do.
1: Well I have to say that because immigrant movement I was more equipped to do the work in Cuba. Uh, and now, because the work I did in Cuba, and I'm going to continue doing do it because I'm doing the institute, the Hannah Arendt Institute for Artivism, I feel, I almost feel like if you see all my work, like from 20 years, you have seen, I have been always having the same questions. The question is, that what is art for? And how can we put art to the service of people? So I have been trying to, to bring that conversation a little more in depth. And right now I'm just, and how to be a political artist is also another question. So I think I went from like looking at power to try to understand what it is to like saying, oh, I can use some of those elements power use so I can talk to them to try to engage in a conversation to now trying to, actually my last piece was them performing for me because I think the piece in Cuba, uh, in a way, I only had to announce that I was going to do something, and the system activated like crazy, and they start reacting.
0: So when you say the system reacted, do you mean like systems of artists, systems of activists, systems of who?
1: Government system. Oh, I see. Yeah. In Cuba. Got it. Yeah. So, yeah, I sometimes, like, at some point you're like, this is absurd, and then sometimes talk on the phone, and I know the phone was tapped, and I was like, yeah, because I'm going to go to this place and do that and that. And you see, like, I said, do that next week, and then you see immediately, like, you know, them starting to do things I don't do. And it was like, it was like them performing. It was almost like an orchestrated, like, you know. But now, yeah, now I want to go and do something more systematic, so also.
0: Tell me about the new institute you're creating in Cuba.
1: Yeah, so I'm very happy because I think this is an institute for artivism. That's another thing we're always trying to push here, uh, which is how, uh, it's the same questions, but the Institute of Artivism and Aaron is going to be focused in civic education. And we're going to have three main areas. Uh, We're going to have the area, as an institute, we have to go in an educational, like pedagogic area, which is civic institution through art. And we're going to have a wish tank, a think tank, and a do tank. So we're going to start by people's wishes. We're going to try to find out how those can become reality. And we're going to try to either implement them or promote them or tell the government that's what people want. Uh, so we'll see how that goes.
0: How do you think the Immigrant uh, Movement International informed the way you've created this?
1: I think because uh, I was part of Immigrant Movement International, I know this institute in Cuba can happen. Because I saw it happening in Queens.
0: That was Cuban artist Tanya Bruguera. Coming up next, we go deeper into Queens and see how one artist is turning the endangered languages of the borough into art. This is the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Hrog Martanian. Queens is home to 2.8 million people, and 48% of them are foreign born. It's literally the borough of Babel, a place where 500 languages and dialects are spoken. Listen to this one. <laughs> That is Livonian from Latvia. It has only five speakers left in the world, as in one, two, three, four, five. And some of them actually live close by in Rigo Park. Now picture this obscure language as a tiny pink polygon inside a patchwork of different shapes and colors. Each one is an endangered language. And together, they form the Garden of Forked Tongues, a 100-foot-long mural at the heart of the Queens Museum. My first impression was that the image looked like a tongue, but that's not quite right.
2: It could be a, a kind of a snake. It could be a kind of a, a garden um, with a lot of different paths in it. Um, it. It could be a tongue.
0: That is New York-based Afghani-American artist, Maryam Ghani,
2: who created the piece. It's a bit amorphous in terms of the actual shape that it represents, um, but what it actually is is a data visualization. Uh, so it's 59 polygons that represent 59 different endangered languages that are spoken in Queens.
0: Those endangered languages include Neo-Aramaic from Iran and Iraq, which you can hear in Astoria, Ladino, a form of Judeo-Spanish spoken in Forest Hills, and Masalito from Western Darfur that can be heard in the homes of Jamaica, Queens. Mariam lives in Brooklyn, but she teaches at Queens College, which gives her a window into the borough.
2: Well, to me, I think this was really fascinating because I've I have been interested in language for a long time as an artist, uh, and it had never occurred to me that there were quite so many languages being spoken in Queens, and that languages were being spoken in Queens that are actually you know dying out in the places that they originally came from. I think you know i wouldn't I wouldn't call it like a museum of languages per se because I think uh, you know some of these languages are really still very vibrant, not only in the, the immigrant communities here, but also you know some of them in the places that they're from, they're just you know sort of shrinking. It speaks a lot to the way that Queens, for me, really feels like an immigrant borough. Like Queens, for me, is a place where you feel this kind of, the truth of this kind of legend that New York is an immigrant city.
0: Standing in front of Mariam's mural conveys the sense of Queens as a patchwork of communities cobbled together to form a whole, each providing its own flavor, but assembled, they complete the image. The cliche might be the US is a melting pot, but here it looks more like a mosaic. The project seems to capture not only the spirit of the borough, but also the museum.
2: The Queen's Museum is very progressive in its thinking about how to be uh, a community-based museum um, and what that actually means, and what it means to be part of a larger community.
0: That was Mariam Ghani. While museums today are rushing to collect auction superstars and throwing together blockbuster exhibitions, the Queen's Museum is doing something else. You probably won't find another museum that has three community organizers and an art therapist on staff, and it will soon house a branch of the Queen's Public Library inside. The Queen's International Biennial features 34 artists and groups. This is their sixth edition, and it's the only exhibition that focuses on the work of artists living and working in the borough. I toured the show with the museum's president and executive director, Laura Reykjavik. She said, this time around they had more to choose from than ever before
3: it's really the only biennial exhibition that features the work of artists who are living or working in Queens and this obviously has become a far more uh, expansive group of artists in recent years given the number of artists who are moving to Queens not just because Queens is awesome but also because they can't simply can't afford studio space and places to live in the other boroughs so you know I think that what we're seeing here this year in particular is an extremely diverse group of artists who are really relating to issues of globalization in some very profound ways. I think that everything from sort of the flood of images that we get, on a day-to-day basis to strange, informal economies. I was really
0: impressed this year because I think the list of artists kind of showed exactly like, before they tended to be more emerging. Now mm-hmm. it's like a mix of emerging and well-established. Definitely. And it's a little bit of like, oh, I had no idea they're based in Queens. Right. A little bit, you know, of oh, that's going on, you know?
4: Yeah, it was a huge surprise to us as well. I mean, we had getting in touch with Kate Gilmore, people like Kate Gilmore and Mark Tribe, who are based in Queens and they were super enthusiastic also to have their work in conversation with some more emerging voices. Really the Queens International as a whole is this kind of thinking about spaces of transition or points of contact um, between different identities geographies, politics, or even media in many ways. So I think it makes total sense to have some more established voices in line with kind of emerging voices to kind of make that point of tension kind of even more visible in terms of the artist's practice.
0: That's Lindsay Burfond, guest co-curator of The Queen's International. She's enthusiastic about the show and took us into a work that collects insult humor, like Yo Mama jokes, as a way to hear the unlikely bonds between people.
4: They're really looking internationally on how that kind of, the humanness in that kind of joke and how it really does kind of exist in almost every language or every way of speaking, but it shifts right. in a huge way. So it's
0: universal, but there's, there are certain inflections that give it different kinds of meanings.
4: Definitely. Um, so we're walking into the video installation right now, which is called The Eternal Insult. And this is going to be an evolving installation.
0: Your mom is so old that when, that when she takes her clothes
3: off, there's spiderwebs and dust all over. You're as dumb as a pile of bricks.
1: You're about as smart as a bag of bricks.
4: When you don't care to send the very best. What they have going on here is a randomizing software of their archive, their video and sound archive of janks that they've collected around the world, everywhere from Pittsburgh no to Mexico City not. to Finland. And they have kind of set up this randomizing software in order to kind of set up these spontaneous battles between different people they've encountered throughout their collection events in these different countries.
0: What exactly is a jank?
4: So a jank, the definition is right over here. I'll read it to you because it's very particular. One of the members of the uh, collective is from Alabama. And apparently this is a very popular term in Alabama for a type of joke, and it is Jokes intended to directly insult the recipient by attacking personal attributes, often leading to verbal sparring.
0: The Jenks Archive work is one of many that gathers personal material from the public to make something new. Another work by Freya Powell asks people to anonymously share one memory they'd like to keep forever, and one they'd like to forget.
1: The Skin I Live In is a 2011
0: Spanish psychological thriller film written and directed by Pedro Almodovar, Starring Antonio Banderas, Elena Anaya, Marisa Paredes,
2: Jan Cornet, and Roberto Alamo.
3: I'd like to remember squatting and kissing V behind the door at the residency at night. We were hiding and trying to keep it all a secret.
0: One of the curious things about the last two pieces we just saw was the fact that they're sort of curating um, stories by Mm -hmm. other people. They're not necessarily uh, creating something new in terms of like, they're sort of putting these stories together and try and asking us to sometimes see patterns and other things within that. Where does that interest come from?
4: I think the interest comes from in, you know, this kind of mapping of the world we're living in right now. I think a lot of it also comes from this kind of necessity or impulse online to kind of share a lot of yourself and see a lot more of people's stories kind of aggregating online. I mean, there are certain hashtags that people kind of share their own stories on. um, And I think it allows us to see this kind of wide perspective of experience that maybe we didn't know from as many people as we do now in the past.
3: Yeah, and I think that there's simultaneously this kind of false intimacy that we get from these kinds of Mm. sort of more confessional moments, whether it's in this sound piece that we just heard or, you know, when we look at our Facebook pages, when, you know, there's somebody we barely know kind of spilling you know, we're friends, but uh, we don't really know one another very well. And they're sort of telling us a very intimate element of their day daily life. And I think there's a certain, as Lindsay, as you just pointed out, there's a certain need to kind of map that. But I also think that it, it's like this push-pull that we get all the time. You know, living in a city can be simultaneously alienating and very comforting for the proximity of other people. I think as New Yorkers we tend to try to build sort of borders around ourselves. We wear headphones on the subway to try and maintain some of that personal space and yet there's also this kind of yearning and as a somebody who's spent the most of her adult life in New York City, there are those wonderful moments that we've all had where we've shared a truly kind of wonderful, intimate moment with somebody who's a total stranger, uh, either on the street or on public transportation. And I think some of these projects tap into that and tap into our yearning for that kind of connection, even if it is very fleeting.
0: That local feeling comes through loud and clear with artists like Brian Caverly's scale model of his Queen's studio in a shipping crate
3: he created this work, and when he brought it in, obviously, I thought that it was inside. (laughs) You know, I mean, I had heard about the project, and so I I knew that there was something coming that was an exact physical replica of a studio. But I think also it's a huge studio when you look at it. I mean, you know, it's very, we can look inside, we can see his vacuum, his industrial vacuum cleaner, all of his random pieces of plywood, his kind of junky couch, his pile of art forums, you know, it's all there, every smudge, every little detail. And you're drawn in close and you're allowed to see the whole studio, but kind of not really, and you know, there's always this kind of allure around getting into an artist's studio and seeing what the process looks like. And I think, you know, this is kind of playing with that because you actually don't get very much information besides, you know, there aren't even really any artworks visible (laughs) that you can tell. You, You see materials.
0: Eileen Maxson's work is displayed as a long scroll with images on one side and text on the other. It uses social documentary photography to tell a story about globalization and labor. The invisibility of these South Asian workers disappears as they stand in the frame of the images. The paper itself resembles a receipt, which is what you'd come to expect from a commercial transaction. Though this one, with people, the artists may never meet in person. The images, though, definitely aren't straightforward.
4: The whole project happened on Mechanical Turk, which is Amazon's anonymous labor kind of website where you can go on and, do tasks like transcription um, for a small reward. So often this involves kind of exploitative labor. Requests are coming in from all over the world. And basically, Eileen wanted to subvert that anonymity a little bit, or try to, to try and ask those on the website to submit for a fee images that were unGoogleable so you couldn't just so the images in the beginning are ones she received before she amended the prompt um, so she just received these random images when she asked for a picture of the person she's trying to get at who is the person that i'm communicating with on this website who is the person that i'm asking to labor for me
0: uh laura um in terms of the queens international i guess part of the question that comes up when we when thematic shows arise is do we need a show on in that theme so the question is why do we need a show about Queens?
3: I think there's a lot of really fascinating work being done here, uh, increasingly so, with the flood of uh, new folks who are coming to Queens to live and work. And why not? I mean, you know, it, 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 there are all kinds of different biennials all over the world. Why not have one that focuses on the incredible diversity of stuff that we've got going on here in this borough and I will say also you know we are a public museum situated in a public park and in the next couple of years we'll also have a public library embedded in the museum itself and so this kind of nesting of democratic institutions for me is a very important element of what our ethos is about yeah
0: and I was kind of uh, curious what you thought in terms of is the radicality of the Queens Museum partly because it is a wholeheartedly public institution because you know, I mean, that's very rare nowadays. Uh, at least it feels rare, or maybe it's well, becoming more rare. let's just say
3: this. I, I say a public institution because we act as though we're fully funded by the city of New York. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there is a large portion of our budget, a very large portion of our budget that is that is privately funded by whether by mostly by foundations and philanthropic uh, entities but also individuals like any other museum like the Brooklyn Museum or the Met or whatever but just to say that we have maintained a very public ethos because it is part of our relationship to the community that we serve on a day-to-day basis. I would like to dissolve the glass wall that is between the museum and the park. I want this to be people's places where the people who hang out out there can just, you know, they can come in here too. I always joke around that, you know, people come for the bathrooms, which you can access at any time. They're public bathrooms, but you stay for the art. To me, that's, that's success.
0: Okay, that was great. So we were talking to Laura Reykjavik, the director of the Queen's Museum, and Lindsay Burfond, guest co-curator of the Queen's International. Thanks so much.
3: Thank Th- you. Thanks, Rog. See you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Hyperallergic, the podcast. We're now on iTunes, so please subscribe and stay up to date on future episodes. I'm Hrag Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Giseli Rigatau. Theme music is by Garen Geikian. And our publisher and co-founder is Viken Geikian. Thanks for listening.